performance sport. The stakes are constantly getting higher, pressure to perform is intensifying all the time and the result of the weekend is often what it all comes down to. This is the Leaders Performance Podcast, the podcast where we chat to coaches, athletes and practitioners, the individuals at the top of their game. I'm Henry Breckenridge, I work in the content team here at Leaders and I'm joined by my usual partner in crime, my friend and colleague, John Porch. John, a big hello and a big welcome back to you. You've been on holiday enjoying yourself too much, John, and you've left me high and dry here <laughs> in the Leaders studio. How very dare you, taking liberties. Oh dear. All jokes aside, John, how are you and how's the time away? Well, frankly, Henry, I'd still be away if I could. I'm very well. I was in Hungary visiting my in-laws with my wife and they plied me with as much food and drink as I could possibly take. We visited a spa. The sun was shining every day. I mean, do you want me to go on? Better not, John. I'll, uh, I'll only get jealous. So <laughs> Sorry. Let, let's get on to uh, today's podcast for our listeners, which is sponsored by Kaiser. The conversation you're about to hear is with someone else who's had a bit of time off, John, uh, as he prepares for the upcoming rugby season in a new role with a new team. It's a conversation with professional rugby union coach Stuart Lancaster, who, as we speak, is making the move from Dublin to Paris. From Leinster Rugby, where he's been a senior coach for the last six and a half years, to Racing 92 in the top 14, where he'll assume more of a director of rugby role with the team. Bit of context for our listeners that may not know. During his time with Leinster, the Irish province have won the Heineken Champions Cup in 2018, as well as four United Rugby Championship titles. Bit of a winning streak there, John. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> the team have been at the pinnacle of domestic and European rugby union in recent years. And after hearing this upcoming conversation with Stuart, you'll hopefully understand how and why the club have been so successful. Week one in the new Parisian digs begins next week for Lancaster. But John, we managed to catch up with him in May before he started packing his bags and boots for Paris. Give us a quick flavour of what we spoke about. Well, Stuart is always great value for money, Henry. He talked about coaching Grand Slam winners with Leinster, World Cup stars, of course. He talked at length about the systems and processes he's helped put in place at Leinster alongside Leo Cullen. But he's now going to be starting from scratch in Paris, putting together a team made up of his coaching staff. It was interesting to hear about the hands-on approach he's planned for year one. Certainly was, John. New home, new club, new team, new language he's got to learn. A lot on his plate, I think it's fair to say. But I'm backing Stuart to do a great job if his time at Leinster is anything to go by. Anyway, let's get into today's episode where I started off by asking Stuart about his appointment at Racing and what prompted him to make the move to the Parisian club. Racing had decided that they wanted to make a move. Jackie Lorenzetti was the president and um, he's in his early 70s, wanted to move away from that presidential role. And Laurent Traverse, the current head coach, um, was offered the president's role. And um, as a consequence, he'd opened a vacancy as a head coach um, for Racing 92. And I guess unbeknown to many people, I actually did some consultancy for them in 2016, post-England, pre-Leinster. And uh, anyway, that one was obviously stuck with them. So anyway, I got a phone call from them and they said, listen, we're interested in you coming. You know, what do you feel? And uh, at the time, I was coming out of contract in June 2023 with Leinster. It was my seventh season. And for the first time, really, I, my head was turned a little bit by the opportunity to try something new in a different country, in a different competition, the top 14, obviously, um, and try and build something as uh, successful as Leinster, but in a completely different context. 
So, so that was probably one of the early attractions. So I went and met them and I'd been to the training ground before, but you know, again, the, the intrigue and the challenge from a leadership and coaching perspective of going to coach in a different country, foreign language, and all the challenges it would bring, I guess, was the, the main factor why ultimately I decided to not, you know, extend my contract at Leinster and take this opportunity at Racing. So it took a little bit while to, to work through and uh, decide, to be honest. But I think Racing did a very good job. And I think certainly when a company or a team as big as Racing come to you and say, we want you, there is no plan B, you're our number one man, then, you know, it, help, it, it helps persuade you. Because I remember after the World Cup, Wayne Bennett said to me, wherever you go next, make sure you 100% want to go and they 100% want you to come. And I definitely felt that from Racing. Um, so, so yeah, so ultimately it was um, agreed in September. So it's been a long lead in, as they say, uh, but uh, we actually played racing in Europe as well, the irony, um, <laughs> with, with Leinster. And, um, but no, since then, the day job, obviously, doing the day job, you know, doing my very best to try and help Leinster win consistently. And then, you know, in the evenings or spare time, whatever, just trying to catch up with the people there and build a new coaching team and try and, uh, sign some new players, and but also maybe just change the way that Racing will do things next season on the back of my experiences with England and Leinster. Stuart, we'd like to talk a little bit more about what's coming down the line with Racing, but you spoke there about taking time to make this decision. So I'm curious to ask you why you feel now that perhaps you're a better coach and maybe a richer person as you move on from Leinster, and what do you put that down to? I think I think um, coaching club rugby means that you are fully committed to coaching forty weeks of a forty forty weeks of the year really. You know, once you start the preseason, um, you begin the the preseason games. You've got the league games, you've got the European games, you've got the finals piece at the end. So when you do that for seven years, you know you definitely get more and more runs on the board. Um, certainly, the role with Leinster is a lot more leadership and coaching role than it is managerial. Um, with England, it probably was a strong leadership managerial role with less coaching, obviously there's less games. So I think this year runs on the board, let's call it, as a coach. Um, over seven years, um, the plan do reviewer sessions, the learning from defeat and victory, the coaching of the best players, trying to develop younger players. Just by doing that on a repeated basis, I do think it's made me a better coach um, for sure. Plus, you know, the reflection piece of all the lessons learned from academy roles, coaching in Leeds, Saxons, England, etc. You know, so the accumulation of knowledge, I guess, I've learned, and I'm 53 now. You know, I'm not a young, young coach, so to speak. And uh, so I think it's a, it's a combination of things. But I do think the actual, the number of games and the number of training sessions and meetings and uh, planning that you have to do in a, in a club environment over seven years has helped, and it sets me up nicely for 26 league games in the top 14 plus European games. You know, obviously. It's more again coming around the corner, but in a different language and with a different group of players. And for the benefit of our listeners who maybe don't know rugby union intimately, what does the director of rugby role at Racing entail? So my role at Leinster is I'm currently um, effectively the senior coach. So Luke Cullen will be the head coach. So he'd look after the bigger picture. Um, he'd look after everything from the academy upwards through to the senior team and beyond the board, the relationships with the... Uh, the IRFU, you know, the Irish Rugby Union, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, managing all the staff. So I'm going essentially into that type of role that Leo does at Leinster. I guess what's the difference? The difference is I've tried to surround myself this time, which maybe I didn't do that effectively with England, 
with more people to help me on the managerial side of things. So it frees me up to do the leadership and the coaching piece more because I don't want to be taken away from the actual on the grass coaching. You know, I think I've been born and bred a teacher. My passion really is coaching and, and leading. So the first thing I did when I got offered the racing role was to get reassurances from them that I could bring in a general manager. So get a new, get a GM, have an effective team manager, have a really good um, head of strength and conditioning and, you know, in charge of the medical department. Make sure that the presidential role and the CEO of Brassing were were all fully aligned. So trying to really create a management team around me, um, which allowed me to lead and coach, and they concentrate on the management side um, with my obviously direction. So I don't get caught in the in the weeds, so to speak, uh, and dragged away from the on the field coaching because that's the bit I really I really enjoy, and that's the bit I think I can make the biggest impact at Racing. So once that was in place. The next step then was to get the coaching team in place that were going to assist me. So it's very much um, um, a French-based coaching team. So Freddie Michelak, the backs coach, uh, Dimitri Sazeski, the forwards coach, Yannick Nianga, um, Virmi Bakatawa are going to be running the what's called the Espoirs, the academy lads, and they're going to transition those players through, Joe Rokokoko. So some great young coaches there who I can develop as well. And hopefully, you know, after four years there, pass the baton on to them and they can take Racing on to the to the future as well. What enables you to decide, okay, I want to change or develop that? What does the thought process look like? Well, obviously it helped playing against them. So obviously I've got a pretty good knowledge of where their strengths and weaknesses are. And obviously by asking good questions of the people who are in the existing organization uh, and studying where they, for example, how their working week works or how they review performance or how they prepare for opposition, how they develop their attack and defensive systems, how the flow of the uh, the office works, how the flow of the week works, how the gym program works in relation to the rugby program. You know, all those little things. So the first period of time was A, analysing them, B, discussing with both coaches and senior players of Racing what they could, thought about the current environment and understanding how it, how it worked. And then from there, it was thinking through what I'd like to change and then selling that change to the existing people. Because obviously I'm coming in and the majority of people are going to be the same. So to give an example, like I would prefer an open plan office. So there's a lot more conversations, coaching conversations take place. And I would prefer the academy coaches within that office space. Obviously I'm going to need a private office um, for one-to-ones or you know, meetings or whatever, but generally my door will always be open. So that open plan office is, is an example. And um, the structure of a working week, you know, uh, generally in France, it'd be different to say uh, an English or an Irish uh, model. But I, I'd like to bring that model across because I know it works and I know how it works. And I know that if I can coach well, then I can improve the quality of the performance. So I wanted to change the working week. Little things like um, when we announce the team um, to the players. You know, some, some coaches like to announce it early in the week. Some coaches announce it late in the week. I personally will, will make it earlier in the week than they're used to. The intensity of train sessions, the train sessions might be shorter rather than longer, but with more intensity. They'll be more expected from the players in terms of delivery, in terms of preview and review of performance. The gym is going to change. Um, so the actual mechanics of the office will change. The office space, the gym space, how we attack and defend will change. And the reality is I get there in, so my my last week at Leinster will be probably in three weeks time, hopefully, three weeks holiday. And then I arrive in 
Paris uh, late June. Um, pre-season will start the start of July, and the first league game is the 16th of August. There's a lot that's going to happen in, in those five weeks in the lead-up to the first league game, and it's that's my challenge, to try and get them to to work in a different way, adapt to the new way of working, and then deliver success. And I'm certainly sure that time is going to fly by. And I know that Henry has some questions lined up about your coaching approach and philosophy. But just before we move on, I just wanted to ask you, what do you feel is the key to making good decisions and then managing those through to the end? I think um, getting as much information as you can before you make the decision would be number one for me. So I don't think you're ever going to get 100% of all the information you need to make it all the time, you know, the right decision all the time. But definitely, I think that... um, Get as much information as possible. So an example being, in order to decide whether to change the working week or not, I needed to find out whether to, what it currently looked like, you know what I mean? So, so, so trying to get as much information as possible. I think drawing on my previous experience of what's, what's worked um, and what I feel works well, and obviously my experiences of when I've done things differently, what, what's, not, what's not worked. And then ultimately going with my gut instinct, I think, you know, obviously you take on board the opinions of many people, as many people as you can, but as a leader, at some point, you've got to make a decision. You have to take the organization in a certain direction. So I had people say to me from Racing, for example, well, yeah, this would be quite a big change and maybe, you know, you need to extend this part of the day and they're used to this. And, but ultimately you know, I listened to everyone's opinion, but also I had to make a decision about what we're going to do. And that's, then that's part of being a leader really, you know? Um, so, so I think experience, I think information, um, and I think good instinct is, is, is part to play as well. Stuart, I'd like to talk to you about your coaching approach and philosophy, two things that you've kind of already alluded to, um, in the first part of this conversation. I was listening to the second captain's podcast recently and on there you said when I came to Leinster I knew that we weren't going to be the biggest genetically or the strongest team in the world but there was no reason why the team couldn't be the fastest fittest and most dynamic. I'm curious how does your sort of coaching philosophy feed into a statement like that? Well it actually it actually uh, married together to be honest so the 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 way in which I believe the game should be played uh, match the DNA of Leinster, you know, the, the history, the identity of the team, how they, how the, the spectators expect them to play, how the players want to play. But also, coming to Ireland, it's a homegrown squad, so we're not going to sign multiple players of different genetic profile who are going to help the team. You know, the reality is we've generally got an Irish, 95% Irish-based team. And um, so that was part of the... Uh, decision as well so when it's obvious that you're not going to be able to sign you know 140 kg second rows uh, or or tight head props from from around the world you know you got to make do with what you've got so that that was the the main driver behind uh, my thought process at the time but it married with what i believe the game should be played anyway so so we started down that route uh, back in 2016 and uh you know reiterate not inheriting a terrible team, you know, it was full of Irish internationals at the time. So it was, a, it was an amazing team to inherit. They probably just needed a little bit more uh, direction on the field and a bit more leadership growth off the field. So people often say, oh, well, you know, the game sort of teaches you how to perform. And I'm like, no, I think it's the coaches that, 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 that teach the frameworks and give the players the frameworks and the understanding of how to play. So a lot of time was spent on explaining the way in which we were going to play, the reasons why we're going to play, selling it and influencing the players to, to buy in and then creating um, a framework with which we could play in 
and then creating a skill set within the framework which allowed the players to make good decisions. And then we just trained that on a repeated basis, but increasing intensity and speed uh, and volume, I guess, um, so that they could um, repeat that under pressure uh, over and over again, both in attack and defence, I guess. So that was the sort of how it started. And I guess over the last seven years, we've just kept evolving and working in the same in the same way, which is, you know, it's great to see, for example, the majority of the Leinster players play for Ireland. Ireland beat France in an unbelievable Six Nations game where it's 46 minutes ball in play. Uh, and there's, there's not many games I've seen at that level. And the lads who played for Ireland that day, you know, a lot of the Leinster lads, they were peaking at the end of the game, you know. So that sort of seeing the the fruition of all your hard work deliver at the top end of the international game was, you know, it's very rewarding. Obviously, Stuart, high performance sport is about having or finding an edge. What are some of the ways then you can work with players to optimise their cognitive load so that you can impart some of what you're trying to do in training, getting those reps in? Where can you free up space, I suppose? What causes the biggest strain in modern rugby is probably another consideration within that as well. I think the players capacity to absorb and learn new information is very very good in Ireland so you know they're regularly used to coming in on a Monday morning review and being really thorough in the review performance and analyzing why things went well and why things didn't so as they've grown as individuals and as leaders they've now contributed more and more to that to the extent that you know as a coaching job is to make yourself redundant and I do feel if people came into Leinster now on the on a big week you'd see a lot of the players driving it. Um, but over the first three or four years, it was very much coach-led. But now as that progression's come through the playing squad, um, and that's the cohesion of coaching the same players for seven years now, that they really can drive that. In terms of their their ability to to deal with the mental load, it's just making sure you, you don't overcook it, basically. Um, you don't overcoach. But equally... You don't skip detail that means that you're underprepared or or you're not educating them and growing them. Do you know what I mean? So we tried to grow them intentionally both off the field as leaders and their ability to communicate in meetings, to understand the game, to bring through younger players is a big part of, of what lends to do really well. And then on the field, their ability to be great problem solvers, decision makers under pressure, which again comes back to A, the understanding of the B, game, B, the frameworks that you operate in, C, the skill set to operate within those frameworks, and then they have to make good and fast decisions in them, which they get used to doing by the speed and the complexity of decision making games I throw at them in training. And then you play the game and then you review the game and then you learn and you bank that learning and you move on to the next game. And, and it just... It's like a little snowball effect of, of gathering weight and speed as it goes down the hill in terms of depth and knowledge, depth of knowledge and depth of experience, I guess. I'm just interested to know if you find that balance tricky in terms of ensuring that you're giving the players what they need, but then also not giving them too much that they don't grow. Is that a tricky is that a tricky balance to kind of acquire? Yeah, I think it is. I think I think it I think it, uh, it again it comes with experience really, you know. So as a as a PE teacher, you're taught about the the Mostrum spectrum of teaching styles, you know, one being command and control, the other being empowering and um, reciprocal teaching, they called it, where teach, uh, the pupils are teaching each other. So you get taught that very early as a teacher. And, you know, your your style of delivery and the way in which you educate the players and develop the players 
should shift along that continuum as you as you grow as a team and as an organization. So initially, you know, when I go to Racing, for example, I'll definitely be down the more directive route to start with because I'm trying to impart my knowledge and impart the style of rugby that I'd like us to play and the, and the reasons why we're going to train the way we train. And without being a dictator, there'll be an element of this is what we're doing and this is, but here are the reasons why we're doing it. And I've got a million real life examples of why it works because obviously they could, they played Leinster this year. They know, they know what it felt like. So initially it'd be like that. But then as I uh, hopefully build relationships with those individual players and they begin to understand it and they can then start to own it, then I can stop being as directive and start being more questioning and more challenging in the meetings. And then ultimately they should be answering the questions before I've even asked, asked them, really. Um, and again, that's probably where we are now. You know, we've got... Um, it, it, only, it only works, though. Like, if you imagine a pyramid, you have to have the culture right first. You have to have a strong um, identity as a team. So part of what I'll be doing at Racing is talking a lot about what does Racing 92 stand for? What is the identity of the team? Who do we represent? What's our reason why? What are we going to... What's our purpose? What's our goal? And make sure we've got good values that, that that create good behaviors. Because if you haven't got that bit, I can coach as well as I like. But, you know, if, if there's not a good culture, not good people and not who want to learn and, and buy in, then it becomes very hard really to do it effectively. Very lucky at Leinster, as I say, inherited a great culture, very strong identity when I arrived, excellent behaviors and standards and great values, just needed a bit more direction on the on the rugby and the, and the development of the leadership front. Rassing, you know. Let's see. Let's see. I've got my own ideas, really, what needs to improve. Uh, but um, in an ideal world, that's that's the way you'd go about it. And so you end up with this player ownership model, or if you're working in a, in a business, uh, an organization where you've developed your people so that they are independent decision makers and they can make generally eight or nine times out of 10 the right decision that fits the philosophy of the organization. As much as you can say, what does a group of talented world-class internationals need from their coaches in the dressing room then or out on the grass, whether that be in a match context or out on the training track? I still think they need direction. You know, I think they like it's very difficult for a player to if you're going from a week to week basis. And so they've committed physically, mentally, emotionally to the game on the Saturday and they turn up on the Monday and we've got another game you know, the following week. They've not turned the page in the mind as to who the next opponent is. They've definitely not done the preparation because why would they? They've prepared to play the opposition they've just played. You know, they can't be one step ahead when the, the next game's in front of them. So, so as coaches, we need to be one step ahead so that when they come in on a Monday morning, they've obviously reflected on the game, they've thought about what happened. And generally, we start the meeting with, so what do you think? You know, give us some feedback over what, uh, what you thought went well, what we could have done better. Uh, how it went individually, how did it go in our subunits? Did, this was the plan, did we stick to the plan? These situations happened in the game, how did we deal with them? So there's usually that sort of debate. And then I will usually give my point of view of how I saw the game and some of the things that um, we maybe need to think about to improve going forward. So that's the starting point. And then we we have this sort of turn the page mentality. Okay, let's sumo, shut up and move on from that performance. And let's and let's and let's go to let's go to who playing this weekend. So this is our knowledge of the team that we're going to play. This is my thought, and this is our thoughts as coaches as to how we should go about it. Here's some information about them, and the players are obviously beginning to sort of assimilate this on the Monday. On the Tuesday, there's a recall, 
So what did we talk about yesterday? So immediately I'm trying to hardwire our learning so it doesn't get forgotten because the first thing that happens is you walk up a minute and you forget what you've been discussing. So a bit of, there's always a bit of recall um, to try and hardwire our learning from the previous day. Um, and then the next step then is to reiterate and double down on the opposition that we've got coming around the corner, the plan that we're going to do to beat them. And generally by the end of Tuesday and then Wednesday's the day off, Thursday morning, um, if you came in, the players then have designed a game sheet with support from the coaches that they would then talk to each other about in the meeting and they began to own it because ultimately, you know, rugby is not like American football where you control the players when they're on the field because you've, you're mic'd up to the quarterback or, you know, it's they're on the field, they have to make the decisions themselves. So the ownership shifts. So even if they are established internationals, they still need that 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 feedback and that direction at the start of the week. The difference is, is that they're better able to manage the end of the week and the game itself. Um, that's that's the difference, I think, with the top end players. And that's evident when you see the the match out on out on the grass. Really, ultimately, you see the best teams are always making the right decisions at least the majority of the time, and that's just testament to the work you put in during the week, isn't it? As a coaching staff and as a playing group. Yeah, I mean, I'd be I'd be I'd be biased really because obviously I believe in the value of coaching and I believe in the value <laughs> of leadership. And uh, the, there's a debate in Ireland at the moment in Leinster. You know, we've got a an unfair advantage, you know, the demographics of where the players come from, you know, there's more money in the Leinster system. And and my point when I was asked that in the press was, what about coaching? What about the influence that coaching's had within this area? Um, not just my coaching, but the coaching of all the Leinster coaching team, the previous coaches, the Joe Schmitz and the Michael Checks of this world, uh, and the great coaches before them, and how that trickle-down effect has helped the development of schools and clubs in the area, and how there's a collective sense of we're all in this together and how the quality of coaching within the pathway in the academy system of Leinster helps generate this hot spot of talent. And there's no doubt it is. You know, Ireland are ranked number one in the world. Leinster are doing unbelievably well as a, as a provincial team. And the majority of players have come from about a 15-mile square radius. You know, it is one of those classic cases, I think. And uh, yes, of course, demographics and, you know, money does play a part. But, but, but for me, only a small part because... New Zealand have dominated rugby for the last 20 years, and I would say they've got probably the smallest playing population, one of the smallest playing populations, certainly no more money than any other nation, probably less than certainly some of the bigger countries, and yet they've been dominant because of the quality of coaching. And I think what, what we've done well is we've, we've got a really diverse set of coaches within the organisation. So Andrew Goodman's from the Crusaders, New Zealand, Robin McBride from Wales, I came from England, Leo's obviously from, from Ireland. So I think that's helped. But we've all tried to learn and I've probably spent the majority of my early career formative years learning from New Zealand because they were the best and studying and meeting the Wayne Smiths of this world and wanting to know what made them great and I think what what we've done well is is learn that and adapt what we've learned from the southern hemisphere into the northern hemisphere. Back to the conversation in a moment but first a word about our main partners Kaiser. For over 40 years Kaiser has been at the cutting edge of the fitness industry. Kaiser Strength products utilize pneumatic technology and dynamic variable resistance, which allows the user to build strength at any speed. And it offers an unrivaled opportunity to work towards any training goal. Kaiser's cardio products are smooth, silent, compact, and designed with the user in mind. Built with Bluetooth integrated technology, the simplistic yet striking design offers unmatched user longevity. 
Simply put, Kaiser Equipment raises the bar in elevating human performance for everyone. If you'd like to hear more, then please get in touch with the leaders team, who will be delighted to introduce you to the right person at Kaiser. Alternatively, visit kaiser.com to find out more. And now, back to the conversation. Stuart, I want to talk to you about training environments and team cohesion, two things that you've spoken about briefly already. You're now about to embark on your next chapter at Racing 92 in France, a country that you've not coached in before and a language that is new to you. So how do you intend to sort of facilitate and create that team cohesion with the new squad you're looking after? Are the principles the same in spite of the logistical challenges that you're inevitably going to be up against? I think the principles are the same, definitely. I think rugby players are rugby players worldwide. Um, and I think I'm confident in my ability to to create coaching sessions in the right order to develop the decision-making and the, and the understanding that's needed to win or to prepare to help them to prepare to win. Um, so I'm not concerned about that. The main concern for me is the language, really, because... Your ability to communicate uh, is critical to be a good leader and a good, and a good coach. And your ability to build interpersonal relationships and your ability to explain what you mean in precise detail uh, is really important. And and that's my it's going to be my uh, weakest part going in, in my ability to speak French fluently. Now, obviously, I'll learn. So I think during the course of you know I'm doing best to learn now, but it's very hard on Zoom. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I think I'll need to be immersed in it. I will learn. And obviously, for a period of time, there'll be an element of, like the general manager, for example, um, he's fluent in English and French, the team manager fluent in English and French. So there'll be trans- an element of translation going on. In some ways, I think it'd be good for me as a coach because it means I'll have to reduce what I say and make it really explicit. Um, I can use lots of imagery. You know, I've got lots of uh, pictures to show them what good looks like and to explain it. And and then I think as long as I learn the tea, the key the key fundamentals in terms of the language of coaching in France, I think I'll be able to do that. But obviously what I really want to be able to do is to be really fluent so that I don't have to rely on a third person to have a one-to-one relationship. Um, now, a lot of the players are not are not French. You know, so, no, no, so a lot. The majority are French, but there's a significant amount that aren't. Obviously, they're very they're, they're English-speaking. Of the French-based players, I'd say 50% are pretty good English, but that's not the point. You know, my point, my need is to learn French and to be able to communicate to the media, to the stakeholders, to the owner, to um, the fans. And that's going to be a challenge. You know, that is going to be a really big challenge. I've been thinking actually uh, about um, from a leadership perspective, it's a bit like being a CEO of a big organization in, I don't know, the UK or Ireland. And then you're leaving and you now become the CEO of a, the same organization, but you, it's in Paris. And uh, I'm thinking of chrono- of, of just... I don't know, once a month or whatever, just recording my experiences for sharing, you know, with other leaders, because I think it'd be really interesting to to do that over the course of 12 to 18 to 24 months. Um, so that, you know, you can sort of share what it feels like to, what are the challenges? And, and maybe maybe people in their, in their careers will never do what I'm doing, going from England to France to work in France, but maybe they will transfer from one organisation to another. And what does that change management piece look like? I'll, I'll put it that way. Put it this way. If I had someone who was doing that and they develop um, some some form of uh, reflection piece, I'll would, I'd would be really interested in listening to it. 
Stuart, I've got a, a quick fire round of questions for you, if that's okay. So looking for one word or one sentence answers, if possible. I'm rubbish at these. Here we go. Ready? <laughs> uh, 10 questions. First one. Early morning or late nights? Early morning. What's the first hour of the day hold for you? Gym. In the gym. What do you do to de-stress? Uh, gym. <laughs> no, uh, I would say... <laughs> When I'm back in Leeds, the, the definitely um, the dog walk or just the walk, or generally shut, shut the laptop down and read it, read a read a book. Probably a leadership book though. That's not really <laughs> <laughs> it's not a fiction book. <laughs> One word or phrase to describe your leadership style? Um, inclusive. A soft skill you're keen to develop or improve on in 2023? Uh, it's probably not a one-word answer, but I think I'd like to just to, just to be better at being less task orientated so that I can uh, concentrate on the relationships. A trend in high performance you're monitoring closely. Why Why in soccer have some of the top teams started losing? So I'm interested to know what is it What is it about, yeah, a couple of the top teams. I'm cu- that, that, I find that, I'm, I'm curious to know. Best leadership advice you've ever been given? Wayne Benwell, probably. Wherever you go next, make sure you 100% want to, want to go and they 100% want you to come. That was really relevant um, uh, after the World Cup. A highlight or standout moment of your coaching career so far? Can I have a few? I'll give you three. I'll give you one. Winning the Yorkshire Cup with the Leeds Academy team and promotion to the, chat, to the Premiership with Leeds. Um, uh, beating New Zealand with England. Uh, in 2012 and winning the double with Leinster in 2018 and last one if you could coach in any other sports what would that be any team sport really like I would love to you know it could be it could be hockey rugby league get football but probably soccer would be the one that would intrigue me the most because I, you just love when I watch from the outside in and I've been in a few soccer organizations I just think there's so many things that in rugby that that would really benefit in in that in those environments that I've been in that's the end of the quick fire round, Stuart. We won't uh, bother you with any more of those. But you answered well, <laughs> don't you worry. Okay. Want to come on to uh, self-development as a broad topic area, Stuart. And you touched on it there briefly in terms of kind of observing and being inside soccer organisations. I know that you're someone that likes to absorb a lot of information from other sports and bring that back to the environment that you're in, into your coaching role, wherever that may be. Could you give us an example of something you've picked up from another training environment in a different sport that you've then successfully been able to sort of implement into a team that you've that you've coached? The, cl- the closest sport to rugby union is rugby league, um, and I would say my formative years, I was sharing the offices with Leeds Rhinos, who were at the time coached by Tony Smith, Kevin Sinfield, Rob Burrow, and um, Jim Peacock. You know, great leaders, great team, Dan Aguirre. You know, the list goes on. So. I would say I learned a huge amount from that environment at the time. Um, the way in which the players led the team, the quality of the skills, the way in which they trained, um, the the detail that Tony Smith put into his uh, team reviews, the way in which the players engaged in the programme. That's the first one that jumps into my mind when I when I think about it. But I've been very lucky to go on many leadership conferences, leadership performance things, and uh, speaking to Alistair Clarkson from Hawthorne when he was he was in uh, in charge of them in the in the AFL in in Australia, you know the way in which he ran he ran his organisation, going to the Atlanta Falcons and spending time with Dan Quinn when he was there, 
and seeing the way which they analysed opposition performance in terms of the data piece and the detail that the players put into studying opposition players and players was a, was a real eye-opener um, for sure. But I'd say everyone really, like from, from, yeah, from hockey to cycling to UK sport, all the sports involved there, you know, it's, it takes something from everyone really, if you've got an open mind. And that Atlanta Falcons example you shared there, am I right in saying that was reciprocal? Were you, I think I'm right in saying that you were there to, well, part of the reason you were there is you helped with sort of coaching technique for the players. Is that, is that right? Uh, yeah, it was, broad, it was broadly to do with like just talking about defensive um, tackling in rugby, really, you know, and how we tackle and, you know, the one-to-one tackling from a safety perspective, but also, you know, in effectiveness, you know, if someone's making a line break in an American football game, how what would the best strategy to, to get them down because obviously it's a big part of our game um so so that was the main thing really but actually what happened was uh, i ended up speaking to the whole group about my experiences uh, with england in the world cup in 2015 and obviously well, the experiences with england for the four years prior to the world cup so this is back in 2016 2017 but dan quinn moved on now as he's, he's, he's the defensive coordinator of the dallas uh, cowboys who actually rang me over christmas and they had to defend this um sneak play from a, the quarterback sneak play and uh, we ended up having this really interesting debate about how we stop it. It's a bit like goal line defence in, in rugby union. Anyway, um, I sort of gave him my ideas and I also sent him a few plays that I thought might work that we've used in rugby that might work in American football. It was Christmas Eve. I'd only flown back in from Dublin and the game was on and uh, I was watching my son. I was going, oh, this is the play. I was speaking to Dan Quinn about. And then uh, the, the guy who's doing the commentary said, and I understand Dan because Quinn's been speaking to Stuart Lancaster, a rugby coach. I was loving just because the hour he was, I ended up on, uh, yeah, discussed, discussed on uh, NFL big time, TV time or whatever it's called. I don't know what it's called. But uh, so, yeah, so that relationship, you know, still still exists now to this day, which is which is great. Really. An early uh, Christmas Christmas present, that one, by the sounds of things. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, they scored, unfortunately, so it didn't really work. So, uh, <laughs> not to worry. I think it speaks to a broader point though, Stuart, um, about self-development. I imagine you're someone who's incredibly time poor. You're either training, playing, traveling, preparing, etc. So practically speaking, how do you go about self-development? I'm pretty proactive. So I've, been, I've always been very proactive as a young coach. So if I read a book that I thought was resonated, I would I don't know, try and get hold of the author and chat to them about you know, what they thought. If there was um, a a course to go on, I would generally go on it and I would learn obviously from the course, but also learn from meeting other people. I'd be quite proactive in following those up. The level five leadership course I did with the RFU around, I was about 35 at the time, was held at Ashridge Business School. And that sort of opened my sort of understanding of leadership and management, emotional intelligence, relationship management. So once that door was opened, then obviously there's books to read and there's avenues to follow up. So during my sort of thirties to forties, joining the RFU, the RFU's um, coach development program run by Kevin at the time. And the opportunities that created was incredible, really. And the people you got to meet, and obviously coaching England as well. And then you come to Ireland and there's a whole new world to learn from in terms of the GA and um, the way in which they they coach and some of the great coaches over here. And you then begin to start sharing what you've learned back to other people. So during COVID, you know, I did quite a lot of coach development things online to try and share what I've learned. And I'd regularly post stuff on LinkedIn to try and help pass on again what I've learned. And that process of doing that forces you to almost try and stay ahead as well. So you're always studying and learning from the best or uh, like John Wooden or uh, the Bill Walsh books, you know, um, Doug Lomoff's done some brilliant stuff on 
uh, coaching in his books, which I've really enjoyed. One of the challenges of being in Dublin is that I've had to live away from the family. So my kids are now 22 and 21, both 15 and 16 when it came to Ireland. So my wife has had to help them through A-levels, through to university. And we're actually going to live together for the first time in seven years in Paris, which would be nice. But um, which, is, which is obviously a downside from a family point of view, but also, you know, it means that a lot of the time I'm in Dublin on my own in an evening. So I would generally work, reflect, read, study, um, always trying to better myself as a coach. So um, I've not had the additional demands uh, of family, which is not, I wouldn't choose it that way, but that's just the way it's evolved, really. So, so yeah, that's, 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 that's where I'm at at the moment. You know, 53, still keen to learn and would still always, uh, yeah, try and connect with people who I think have got mutually shared passion for, for coaching. And do you place a big emphasis on passing on that knowledge that you've learned? I know you've kind of briefly touched on it there. And the reason I ask is I was reading um, an article that came out a few weeks ago, probably about a month ago, actually, um, ahead of Leinster's game against Leicester in the European Champions Cup. And the article spoke about how you sort of reached out to Richard Wigglesworth, who's the head coach of Leicester Tigers, um, earlier on in the season after his team, I think, suffered a few heavy defeats. And I think the article spoke about how you gave him a few pointers and I guess... um, a bit of advice on how he could sort of take on the team moving forward and get over that sort of hurdle. So I'm I'm interested, do you kind of proactively do that sort of on a, I don't know, bi-weekly basis, monthly basis? Are you kind of looking for opportunities to help where you can or is it just kind of uh, a bit yeah, of... No, I would say, yeah, I mean, that's, a good, that, that's an example. I mean, you know, he'd taken over as an interim coach uh, and uh, yeah, it was a tough start for him. So I, I coached, you know, I coached him with, um, with England and... I know, having been an interim coach, both of Leeds and of England, how difficult it is. So that was just me being proactive. But there'd be other coaches who are young coaches in England now, mainly in England, actually, um, who I used to coach. But, you know, there might be England Saxons players or former England players who are now starting coaching. And um, I remember being that coach at 35 years old, you know, and uh, I remember people helping me and, and what it meant to me. So, are they, so it usually works both ways in that sometimes they'll drop me a line and say, you know, can we have a catch up and I'll always make time. Um, or others will, I'll be more proactive and say, listen, I can see, you know, this is a new job for you. Do you want, do you want to have a chat and touch base, share ideas? It's definitely the teacher in me that, 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 that drives me to do that. It's definitely the, the desire to want to share what you've learned and to help people improve. Sometimes we'll see, you know, with Richard, as an example, we end up playing them in Europe. So you slightly regret uh, being as a, open as you did because uh you're not giving you know lenses secrets away by any stretch you know i would I would never do that but the general philosophies of coaching and everything else um sometimes you could be you've got to be careful but 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 i'll always where i can do that and you know the linkedin exam is a good example you know, i think i've got like nineteen thousand connections now and that's mainly just because i've just put stuff on there and give it away for free really uh, so yeah, I, I do I, I do find it rewarding, um, and it's the teacher. I think that's that's the sort of that's probably the easiest way to describe it. What would it take for the next twelve months to be considered a success for you personally? I'd like, I'd like to think um, personally, embedding myself into the culture and buying you know, and really, really feel part of, of the French culture as a as a from a family point of view, but also from a coaching point of view. One thing that. Uh, when I came to Ireland, I very much felt part of the community very quickly. 
and that was mainly because I was really welcomed um, with open arms, which was brilliant for, for me and the family. So, you know, to go and live in France and to, you know, to, I'm going to be there 95% of, of my time. I'll occasionally get back to Leeds and obviously try and see the kids, you know, when, when I can in between games and everything else. So, so that's that sort of feeling part and learning the language and everything else would be success in, in year one for me. Secondly, to see um, improvements in terms of the performance um, on a more consistent basis. Recognising, I don't think we're going to have the same, you know, it would be amazing if we did get the same win ratio as we have at Leinster, but realistically, to see improvement both in attack and defence and the way in which we, we train and the fitness and cohesion of the teams that we put out. My integration into a management team that's mainly French and their acceptance and buy-in to what I believe in. You know, obviously, that's not going to come naturally. You know, I've got to try and explain and sell my leadership philosophy and my beliefs in the game. So their buy-in and their commitment to the plan would be would be really important, I think, for my... Um, if At the end of the first year. And then, I guess, fourthly, for the players to... Be, to to really have embraced it and to really start begin to own it and drive it by the end of year one, I think would be would be a really good step forward as well. Stuart, that's all we've got time for today. Just want to say a big thank you for for coming on and, and sharing um your your coaching insights. I know you've got a, a busy busy season finale with Leinster, French lessons, preparing for racing and, and plenty <laughs> more besides. So really appreciate you coming on the podcast and, and sharing some of that information. It's been uh, it's been great to have you on. No problem, thank you.